Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I wonder this morning if you've ever met someone who muttered, right? They say something quietly underneath their breath. One of my favorite things is uh, on this TV show we used to watch was a child who he would say something aloud and he would say something aloud, right? He would speak it under his breath. There was lacking of the confidence to say something out loud. When we mutter, we're talking to ourselves and it's almost like we're not wanting the other person to hear us. We kind of just want to talk quietly enough, but still say something that we think matters, person who mutters or, or speaks under their breath, they, they lack the confidence to be heard. They laugh, lack the confidence to be able to speak up, to clear their throat, and to kind of just be able to project what they're thinking. And I'm afraid that the 21st century church is, is content to mutter in our world right now. We have significant, important things to say like this. So Jesus alone offers true forgiveness of our guilt before God. Or Jesus alone shows us how to live rightly before him. He's the definer of our ethics and our conduct. We have good things to say, but we don't clear our throat and speak it loudly. See, when it comes to articulate who God is, we mutter, don't we? Particularly, we mutter when it comes to Jesus' substitutionary death on behalf of sinners. We change the emphases of the gospel, and we kind of just speak loudly when we talk about purpose and and, uh, fulfillment and therapy and all these other things, these kind of benefits of the gospel, but we don't speak clearly about the gospel itself. We say things like this. We say, come to Jesus and find yourself made whole. Or we say, come to Jesus and get a life worth living. Or come to Jesus so you have a reason to get up in the morning. But when it comes time to articulate God's wrath at human sin, his unapproachable holiness, his sovereign rule over every area of our lives, we start talking under our breath. Here's the truth this morning is that our God never mutters, does he? When our God speaks, he speaks with the utmost clarity and intention. Jesus himself didn't mutter about the sins of the Pharisees. He didn't mutter about the need to believe on him for eternal life. He didn't mutter about his unique relation to God the Father. He didn't mutter about his expectation of going to the cross and giving up his life. Jesus did not mutter in his time on the earth. He spoke with clarity. And this morning, we're invited into the middle of a conversation between Paul and these Corinthians. And what Paul is saying is saying, I'm not content to mutter my way to you. I'm not content to speak under my breath. I want to speak with clarity to you, and I want to direct you on what God requires of you, what God asks of you. See, here was the controversy this morning is that when Paul was speaking with the Corinthians, he's getting this feedback that that they're hearing that Paul's ministry was not valid because he came in weakness. Paul had difficulty. He had this thing that he describes later on in this book called the thorn in the flesh. Uh, We don't really know what it is, but he has this kind of 
issue that's given to him as he sees it by God that limits him. And his detractors, his opponents, thought that that was a sign that his ministry was not valid. The other thing that Paul didn't do is he didn't charge money when he showed up. These super apostles that were his opponents, these uh, rhetorical, eloquent speakers, uh, they would charge you to show up at your place and speak, and Paul didn't do that. He actually lived off of the donation of other churches around the area, and so Paul didn't charge them, and they were saying, see, he doesn't charge, he's not worth it, and so he's got this controversy, and he's writing this book of 2 Corinthians to prove himself as a minister of the gospel. Well, we learn right where we land right in the middle of that argument in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21, which Ryan has shown us this morning. Here is our big idea. This is where we're headed this morning. Jesus represented us before the Father so that we might represent him to the world. Jesus represented us before the Father. He doesn't mutter right now. He speaks his righteousness before the throne of God. He's not just speaking under his breath. He's speaking and representing you if you're in Christ. And he's anticipating that we ourselves will represent him to this world. I'm going to start uh, in 11 through 15. We'll see that the messenger, Paul himself, is, is defended. He's defending his ministry there in verses 11 through 15. And then we'll see the, the messenger described, kind of Paul pushing beyond himself and saying, what is it that we all should do in verses 16 through 20? And then finally, the message articulated in verse 21. So we have this emphasis on the messenger and the message in the middle of this argument in 2 Corinthians 5. So let's dig in this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. We're on page 966 in your pew Bible. Paul writes this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it also is known to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul starts off with this defense of his character. He says that he persuades others because of the fear of the Lord. The first thing we see is in verse 11, we see therefore. And every time you see a therefore in the scripture, you should ask, what is the therefore, therefore, right? That's a dad joke and a pastor's joke all rolled into one. Take it home. It's free, right? What Paul has just concluded saying in verse 10 is this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul has this section. He's saying uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Actually, he says the reversal, to be present in the body is to be absent from the Lord. We have this tent, this weakness, this kind of uh, abode that we live in, and someday that will be stripped from us, and we will stand before God in in judgment, and he's saying, take heed of that. And this is why Paul is saying he's motivated by the fear of the Lord. If you've been reading through Richard Lovelace's uh, 
um, renewal as a way of life with us. He defines the fear of the Lord as an understanding of God's love and an understanding of God's holiness kind of mashed together, that the fear of the Lord comes as, as if we fear our own father, as we should fear our own father, that we know there is a bedrock of love and benevolence to us, but it's followed up with a, an intentionality about our character, that God desires to shape his people's character, and to judge those who rebel against him. Fear of the Lord takes all of that into consideration. And so knowing the fear of the Lord, Paul says that he persuades people. That is, Paul is compelled by holy reverence to God, and he doesn't mutter because of his fear of the Lord. Like he's more concerned about this God in heaven who sees what he does and sees the intentions of his heart. And so he speaks with confidence. He speaks with intention to try and convince those in his audience that Jesus is truly Christ, that Jesus is truly God. We see this in Paul's calling. Whenever Paul writes a letter, he's saying, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ, called. Right? He has this sense of his calling and his sense of responsibility to speak the words of God. And so Paul knows the fear of the Lord, and he speaks with confidence. And so what Paul does is he desires to give the Corinthians reasons to boast about him in verses 11 and 12, Right? Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, uh, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience, right? What I am is known to God. God sees me. In fact, this verb is written in such a way that it's, it's God has seen me. He always has seen me. It's a perfect tense verb. So God knows me. The question is, do you know me? That's what Paul is asking here. And he wants specifically that Christians or the Corinthians would know him in their consciences. That is, that Paul hopes that they see the morality of what he's doing, that there's an ethical nature of how he's interacting here. He's not self-seeking, but he's following the calling of Jesus in his life. That's why he starts talking about this idea of commendation in verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. See, these super apostles would come and they were smooth in their rhetoric. Their skill and speech was was slight and, and easy to listen to. Excuse me. It was easy to listen to, and so what they would do is they would pull in these professionalized speakers, and they were eloquent, and they were forethought. They they just uh, would amaze you with all of the things they were capable of saying. The statement goes, and I, I believe this is true, they would actually practice speaking with rocks in their mouths. That's not something I do, just so you know. They would put rocks in their mouths to practice the eloquence of their speech so that they wouldn't trip over their words. So Paul is pulling out. He's saying, I'm not coming here with you with eloquence or with rhetoric. What I'm coming here before you with is my character. He says that you, the Corinthians, might be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. This issue of commendation is significant in the letter to the Corinthians. If we go back to chapter 3, verse 1, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, you yourselves are our letter of commendation. It's like 
they were references for Paul. They were his portfolio, as it were. They were the collection of his work. They were the, the proof that God was working through Paul because under his ministry, they came to faith in Jesus. They were edified under his preaching. They were uh, changed by his presence as God worked through him. But later on, not just in chapter 3, but again in chapter 4, Paul says, he gives kind of a, a defense of his ministry. He says, uh, we, we aren't given to uh, these distortions of the truth. We're, we're not adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, we're commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This is what Paul is doing. He's saying, by the word of God, by faithfulness to the scriptures, I'm commending myself to my audience. You can judge me based upon how I handle the words of God, not by eloquence, not by smoothness of speech, not by my loud superiority or how much I charge. You can judge my ministry based upon how I handle the scriptures. And so Paul's ministry was one of commendation, not condemnation. That's a different thing. Commendation by faithfulness to the word. So when Paul says he's not commending himself, he means to say that he's not doing so in the wrong way. He's not going about ministry in these kind of false, uh, empty-handed kind of um, fronting of righteousness that others had done. He's not like these super apostles who commend themselves through their reliance on rhetoric. No, Paul is one who owns his bills, pays his bills on his own, and shows up in weakness. If we were to go back in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, I didn't come, uh, I, I decided to come amongst you knowing nothing but Christ and Him crucified. I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom. I came knowing nothing but Jesus. See, all of this would seem crazy, right? Even in today's world, you can't just show up and preach Jesus, can you? Certainly, there's got to be something. There's got to be fireworks and a cool smoke show, right? So Paul says, this is craziness. Verse 13, he goes on to kind of describe this. He says, for if we are beside ourselves or outside of ourselves, as it were. It's because of Christ. It's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. See, Paul's crazy is caused by Christ. If we're beside ourselves, it's for God, right? C.S. Lewis has this great quote, and he says, when, when the whole world is running towards a cliff, it's the one who's running in the opposite direction that appears to have lost his mind. And Paul's kind of diving into this idea. He has this otherworldly gospel that embraces otherworldly means, meaning that he can speak the bare-bones truth about Jesus, and what happens is that power from the Spirit brings that conviction upon the lives of other people. And so they submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's just like Ezekiel prophesied. God tells them, prophesy over this valley of bones. And they start to rise up and take on flesh as Ezekiel the prophet preaches. So he has this otherworldly means because he has an otherworldly message. And sometimes messengers get confused and we want to do an otherworldly message with worldly means, Right? And what he does is he unpacks this even further in verse 14. He's saying, yeah, you've died, right? 
You're dead. Look at verse 14, what he says. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul comes to this, he says, this looks crazy because it has this other world orientation in which Christ died and was raised and you died with him. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, he says, through which the world was crucified to me and I was crucified to the world. The desires of this world no longer penetrate my God-redeemed heart. And now I'm here living this new resurrection. See, we died to Christ that we might live to God. Christ died that we no longer live to ourselves. See, the truth is that there can only be one master this morning. And Paul's unpacking that. And we can't bring our, our selfish orientation into our Christian life and expect Jesus to be okay with it. Jesus said in Matthew 6, he said, you can't serve both God and money. You can't do both. Too many times we try to do that. We create some idol, some fabrication of our hearts, and we want to hold the idol tightly while also claiming Jesus. What Paul is telling us this morning is that you're dead. You're dead. You no longer live. That idol that you've created, that you're holding on to, the dead carcass of your former life, it's gone. So we've died to ourselves. We no longer live. This is Paul. This is Paul's defense of his ministry. Why does Paul do the things he does? Because he's dead. He's united with Christ, and he embraces a pattern of ministry that embraces that deadness. Paul wants to expand this, not just to his own life, but to our lives as well. And in verses 16 through 20, we're going to see that the messenger himself is going to be described. And largely, it's going to fall along the same railroad tracks that we just uncovered. In fact, the similarity between verses 14 and 15 and verse 21 is significant. We're going to see the issues of substitution, of vicarious death of Jesus, and our vicarious life with Christ mortification, vivification, big theological term, terms that I like to use to impress you. Maybe not. You're saying it doesn't work, Jason. I don't know what that means, and it's not impressive. But he describes the messenger here in verse 16. Look with me. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of, God, of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
to the messenger is no longer in the flesh, right? Verses 16 through 17, Paul kind of unpacks this. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded others this way, we once regarded Christ this way. We looked through the the veil, the eyes of our flesh. We we saw it through this kind of uh, sin-oriented glasses. And so when I looked at someone else, I just saw the opportunity of what they could bring me. I saw them in my sense of neediness, my sense of, uh, of sinfulness. And so Paul says they no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. Rather, everyone is new in Christ. In fact, they are a new creature, right? Maybe you went to high school with someone that you knew, and you knew them to be... Uh, kind of ordinary, right? But then they went off after high school, they joined the military, and you had this awkward conversation with them afterward because they were a different guy or girl. Their character had been refined and reformed, and you tried to do the goofy things you used to do with them, and they didn't want to engage in that, right? So you know that God has told us that Jesus is all about making things new, Revelation chapter 20, Jesus says, he says, behold, I am making all things new. And it's in the midst of a chapter where there's a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem that descends from the sky. Everything is being made new. We are no exception. Paul is telling us we are a new creation. That is our old life of sin. Our old patterns and behaviors are no longer fitting for us. And now we walk in this newness of life. So Paul says, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. We no longer see them through the lens of our sinfulness and selfishness. And even Jesus, we saw him through that lens of sinfulness and selfishness, but God has made us new. Now we see Christ, our neighbors, everything through the lens of God's redemptive work. But he doesn't just end there saying you're a new creature. Paul's pushing into this identity. And what he's going to tell us is that we're ambassadors, that we now have the ministry of reconciliation. It's been entrusted to us because we ourselves have been reconciled. Verse 18 says it. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, God has reconciled us through Christ. And you're saying, that's great. Reconcile. What does that mean? You might think about accountants. They reconcile books. At least I think that's what they do. Uh, They bring things back into balance together. You might think about the playground, right? You and your buddy have a fight. You need to be reconciled. True nature of it this morning is to return to favor with someone. It's used in 1 Corinthians 7 about a husband and wife that are out of sync with one another, at odds with one another, that they would be reconciled, right? More notably, we see it in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that it's used of God reconciling us to himself from from those who were formerly enemies of him, now brought back into the fold. I used to love this chorus that says, it was Jesus, thank you. and says, once your enemies now seated at your table, we are seated at the table, even though we once were rebel, rebellious against God. It's not just that we're reconciled, that God gives us the ministry of reconciliation. He didn't count our trespasses against us. Instead, he has entrusted the ministry of reconciliation to us. 
ministry, service, work. The word actually is, sounds a lot like the word deacon that we use. It's a word that just means servant. And so Paul is saying we have the service, the work of reconciliation to do. We've been reconciled to God, and now we are busy about the process of seeing others come and be reconciled to God, the ministry of reconciliation. Not only did he give us the ministry of reconciliation, look at what he says in verse 19. He gave us the word of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not recounting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So in verse 18, he gave us the service of reconciliation, the work that we should be doing. And in verse 19, he gave us the word of reconciliation. It's worth noting that in Romans chapter 10, when Paul's talking about who can come to faith in Jesus Christ, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. That when we speak the words of God, it should bring about the work of God so that it concludes with the glory and honor of God. Paul's laying out this framework. He's kind of working backwards through that, that we should be about word of reconciliation ministry. So God gave us the word of reconciliation. Let's be clear this morning. There's no verse 18, ministry of reconciliation. If there's no verse 19, word of reconciliation. Right? There's no way that we can invite others who are sinners against God in Christ, sinners against God, to find redemption and reconciliation in Christ outside of his words. Genuine faith is contingent upon the hearing of the word of God. The word of God must do its work in his people. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that he came knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. See, right now we have all of these kind of methods of ministering And we've got to be careful that they're word-centered and rooted in the Scriptures themselves because that is the means that God uses to convert His people. See, to bring this home in verse 20, Paul gives us an analogy. He says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, what Paul is saying is he's saying all Christians are representatives of Christ. If you have received reconciliation, you are turned around to be a minister of reconciliation with the message of reconciliation, and you are this thing that Paul says is an ambassador. All Christians are representatives of Christ. All Christians are given the ministry of reconciliation. I know this morning some of us will stop and say, no, no, Jason, you don't understand. I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I don't have to do that. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I hear this a lot, that spiritual gifts then become a reason by which I could kind of duck out of the spiritual responsibility that God in Christ has laid upon my shoulders and laid upon all the shoulders of those who believe in Jesus, all of us bear this responsibility. See, the gift of evangelism is those in the church who are uniquely gifted to help train others to do evangelistic efforts. 
they aren't the only ones out there sharing the message of the gospel. They are those in God's church who help train others to maturity in sharing their faith. It doesn't mean that they are uniquely qualified, uniquely qualified to speak the gospel to unbelieving people. That is all people, right? See, we're familiar with this term ambassador, right? To be a U.S. ambassador, you're selected by the president. You are to negotiate diplomatic relations on behalf of the president with another nation. And we hear all kinds of things about this, the foreign diplomat to such and such, and the foreign diplomat to so-and-so, the ambassador to such and such, the ambassador to so-and-so. We stand as a representative of someone else on the other side of the world who cannot speak on their own behalf. They, they are there to kind of represent someone else. We are those entrusted by God with the message of reconciliation, and we have no choice but to speak that message, not to just kind of ad-lib and speak whatever comes to our mind or our heart, what we do is we speak the message of reconciliation to do the ministry of reconciliation. Paul is telling us that we act as this representative before the world. It's good for us to know what that message is. Verse 21 might be the most succinct, full message of the gospel that I'm aware of in the New Testament. It says, for our sake, he made him to be no sin, or to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read that again so I don't mess it up. For our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Some of us are over-familiar with this concept. Yeah, 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 I get it. I've been told this since I was four years old. Jesus died for me. He gave me his righteousness. Bada bing, bada boom, I'm a Christian. I wonder if we might unpack this verse anew. And I wonder if it might be a place for us to kind of be rejuvenated and renewed in our passion for this ministry of reconciliation. So what Paul describes here is that Jesus became sin. You might stop and say, how on earth did the sovereign Son of God, who's perfect in holiness and righteousness, how did he become sin in any meaningful way? Notice Paul is clear. Jesus didn't know sin. That is, he was the spotless lamb of God without blemish. That Jesus himself, though tempted and tried in so many other ways, was our faithful high priest that he himself did not give in to those temptations, but lived with perfect righteousness. So that Peter can says that he's the spotless lamb of God. Instead, he's our faithful savior, tempted in every way, but now is without sin. But God made him become sin by dying the death that we deserved. God laid my sin and the sin of all of his people throughout all time upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, who knew no sin personally, but now would pay the penalty and the punishment that we deserved in our sinfulness. Around the year 33 AD, Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph and Mary, and the son of God, all at the same time, died on a cross outside of Jerusalem. 
And the nature of his death was scandalous. He was died like a common criminal, put to death on a shameful cross in between two thieves, wicked men. Because his enemies had convinced the Roman authorities that the only man to ever live in innocence was actually guilty, Jesus died an undeserved death. But that's not where the gospel ends. Jesus has taken our sin upon him so that we might not bear our sins ourselves. So that I might not have to die twice. So Jesus is our divine substitute given by God to be a bearer of our sins so that we might not experience eternal death and condemnation. But that's not where the gospel ends. The gospel pushes further into the second exchange that happens. And look at what Paul says in the second half of this verse. He says, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, you know yourself, right? Even if you call yourself a Christian, you know that tomorrow morning, you're going to get up and there's going to be some sin that you're just inclined toward. There's going to be some type of rebellious spirit just bound up inside of you. And you're going to say something ugly to your wife or something ugly to your kid or something ugly to your boss. Hopefully you don't get fired or divorced or whatever, but you're, it's bound up inside of you. And so the question we ask is, how can I become righteous? See, right now, Christian, if you are in Christ before the throne of God, it's like Jesus kind of covered you with his blood so that from high, the Father looks down and sees not Jason Bradshaw's sin, but he sees the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Did you know right now that Jesus is pleading, advocating on your behalf with the evidence of his own blood before the Father? See, not only has Jesus taken our sin upon him, he has given us the righteousness of Jesus. It's not just that my bank account went from negative a million dollars to zero. It's now that my bank account has gone from negative a million dollars to positive whatever, lots of money, right? The illustration isn't that God brought me back to zero in regard to righteousness. It's that he bestowed upon me the full righteousness of Christ that I lack nothing before the presence of God the Almighty, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the message of reconciliation that God has entrusted to us. That he saved us by his abundant grace. He's bestowed upon us the righteousness of Christ, and now he fills our mouth so that we can speak this message of reconciliation to the world. See, Paul is saying, this is the motor of mission. This is the thing that drives us to speak, to speak with confidence, that allows us not to mutter, not to be bound up in our mouths so that we can speak with clarity the goodness and mercy of God in Christ. Everything else fails to be the motor of mission. You want to try and motivate yourself to do mission? Don't turn to guilt. 
we used to go to this youth conference and the youth conference would start with this skit. And every time we would go, I, I would just kind of cringe a little bit inside the, the skit would start with this, uh, this, or the conference would start with this skit where these friends would go and uh, they would die in a car accident or, or whatever. And sure enough, they would go and spend eternity in hell. And it was meant to just lay on the consciences of these kids, just this overwhelming guilt. And I'm saying God's motivation for mission, not guilt. Grace, abundant grace is the motor of mission. And if you're reconciled to Jesus Christ, that should be enough to propel you to speak words of grace to the world. And if it doesn't, something's wrong. Something's wrong in the machinations of your own heart that something's not turning right. Something's not working correctly. If you say you're a recipient of grace, but you don't want to speak grace, Something's wrong. I say that as someone who struggles in evangelism. I say that as one who goes, you know, I go to McDonald's all the time, right? I have friends at McDonald's. That's how often I'm there, right? I struggle to speak the gospel. You can pray for me for boldness in the gospel. See, we represent Christ because Christ represented us. We represent Christ to the world because Christ represents us to the Father. And that's the best news you or I could ever receive. Listen, I love my wife. I love my kids. The best, second best decision I ever made was to ask my wife to marry me. And I'll let you debate which kid was the third best decision, the fourth best decision, the fifth. But the best decision wasn't a decision I made independently. I was dragged by grace, brought to this ministry of reconciliation by a sovereign God. See, the motivation for witness is Jesus' substitutionary death. Because Jesus took our place. Notice that's the language of verses 14 and 15 and verse 21. Because Jesus took our place, now I am to represent him to the world. Verse 15, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Ever think about this? In God's wisdom, if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian who claims faith in Jesus, you are uniquely qualified to speak about grace. There is nothing else in all of God's creation that can speak about grace like you can. See, you and I were entrusted with this thing that some of us, we call it free will. And it's a little bit deceiving. Just go with me for a second. But we have this thing called free will, and it was given to Adam and Eve in the garden, and they were allowed to do whatever. They could act independently. And what they chose was rebellion against God's holy purpose. They were the only ones entrusted with this thing called free will. Everything else was subject to God's sovereignty and, and his initiation. And Adam and Eve alone, in their free will, rebelled against God so that they themselves came up short in righteousness. So in all of creation, they're the only things that God allowed to rebel against him. 
And now, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we are the only ones who can understand grace as recipients of grace. Nothing else in creation can do what we do. God shows nothing else in his world to verbalize the message of his grace and mercy other than those who had received his grace and mercy uniquely in his universe. You and I are the only ones that can do that. There's no angel in heaven that can articulate grace the way we can because no angel in heaven has received grace like we have. There's no platypus or dog or shark or whatever that can articulate the grace of God because no platypus or dog or shark has received the grace of God like we have. You are unique in all of God's creation to speak God's grace. Now, I know we're up against it on time. I want to respect our children's workers, but there's two areas that I want us to speak up to not be content to mutter. The first thing is that we are witnesses where we are, and we're witnesses with what we know. Witnesses where we are, and we're witnesses with what we know. Did you know you can be a witness where you are? You don't have to go to China. For some of us this morning, it's good for you to hear me say that your conscience can be freed. Not every Christian is called to the mission field. Every Christian is called to be an ambassador. Not every Christian is called to be a missionary or a pastor or an evangelist. Not all of us are called to this full-time work. You can do mission. You can be a witness where you are. When you go to work tomorrow morning, I guarantee you it's filled with non-Christians. When you go to the grocery store, I guarantee you it's filled with non-Christians. When you come to this church, there are non-Christians present here. You can witness where you are. You don't need to carve out some space in your life that's unique for this idea of witness. It's not the overwhelming thing we do sometimes. We say, yeah, God says I'm an ambassador, so I've got to carve out time. I've got to carve out hours to become an ambassador of Jesus. And maybe if God's calling you to do that, that might be an appropriate thing, but you can do witness at the baseball field of your child's baseball game. You can do witness at the soccer field with your, I got a lot of sports on my mind right now. You can do witness at the soccer field. You can do witness at the uh, staff meeting of your work. You can do witness in the grocery store standing in line. You can do witness where you are. You don't have to create separate spaces to do it. In fact, I would argue that that maybe it's not healthy for you to create separate spaces where you're a witness and not be willing to be witnessed somewhere else. We witness where we are, but we also witness with what we know. You know, Christians get in trouble when we try to witness to things that we don't really know about. We think that the evangelism task is about knowing apologetics, and we try to make all these arguments and reasonings and, and try to defend the faith and do all of these things. Let's just be content to know what we know. And when someone pushes back at our claims of who Jesus is, to be content to say, I don't know about that, but I do know that Jesus has saved me from a life of sinfulness, that he's changed me and he's molded me through his word, and I find nothing more precious than Jesus. Don't know what you don't know. Seek to know what you do know. 
Seems like a pretty simple concept, right? We get in trouble when we try to know what we don't know. But let's be content to own the story that God has given to us, that I am a recipient of grace, and that God is beckoning all people to receive grace in Christ, and therefore this message is simple itself. Maybe you should do the work of memorizing a few simple passages that outline the gospel. I'll tell you, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 in front of us this morning is a great place to start. So simple, so direct, so meaningful. We can memorize the Romans road, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, 6.23, and uh, so on. We can memorize these passages that articulate the gospel so that we can speak the message of the gospel in a timely, defining way. But you have, don't have to be a seminary professor to share your faith. You don't have to be articulate as all the YouTube guys are out there. You just have to own what God has done for you. And you have to be able to speak the scriptures. See, as we wrap up this morning, I wonder if we might be a people who so deeply resonate with the truth of the gospel that we are compelled to speak the gospel to those we love. Speak the gospel to our kids. Invite them to faith in Jesus. To articulate the gospel to our family members, to our loved ones. To articulate the gospel to our coworkers. To articulate the gospel to uh, believers and unbelievers alike in our church body. So that we might see the work of God that he's doing as we represent him as ambassadors. I want to pray to that end. That he makes us strong witnesses to the grace he's given us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray to that end. We see the world in all of its desperation. We recognize that we need to verbalize the truth that you've given to us, the truth that we've received, that we have become reconciled to you in Christ. And so God, Break us down. Allow us to resonate with the truth of your gospel so that we speak the truth of your gospel so that you, with power, can bring others to conversion in Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.